welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Normally it'd just be Allie and I hanging out, having cocktails, and talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Teresa Lim. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Teresa is an author from Singapore who worked as a business journalist and in the world of finance before becoming a writer of her first book, The Interpreter's Daughter. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Yes, I'm from Singapore, as you mentioned, um, which has a wonderful multicultural population of Chinese, Indians and Malays. And I'm of Chinese descent. I went to an English language school and after university, I worked as a journalist and then for a corporate stockbroker. Um, I met my husband while we were both journalists in Hong Kong and um, he is English and we moved to London in 1992, where we've lived since. Perfect. Well, I'm really excited to get into this book that you wrote, and I'm also really excited to get into this cocktail we made for it. (laughs) I can't Um, wait to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So it's obviously called The Interpreter's Daughter, and I based this on a Singapore sling, which is a very famous cocktail. Um, So this has an ounce and a half of gin, an ounce and a half of pineapple juice, Angostura bitters, lime juice, and then to make it a little bit different, we put amaretto in it to give it a little bit of an almond taste. Uh, so cheers to your cheers. book. <laughs> yes, wonderful, brilliant. Mm. It looks like it's it's uh, it looks like it's a uh, it's a lovely color. Yes, yes it beautiful. is. It's a lovely it's like a yes. yeah, like a peach. Absolutely, color. absolutely. <laughs> I love it. So let's get started with your book. And before we dive in completely, we would love for you to set the scene for our listeners. This is a multi-generational memoir. So how far does this story go back in your family? It goes right back to, it starts by going back to my great-grandfather, who was uh, born in the 19th century. Um, and he migrated from South China. He was born in China. He migrated from South China to Singapore. But in the process of writing this book, um, my, my uncle, whom I didn't know until I started writing this book, he lived in Canada. He sent me um, a file, uh, which was uh, the family genealogy. And it that goes back to the 10th century in China. Mm. So that was completely amazing. Of course, I couldn't read it because it was all in old Chinese characters, Mm -hmm. but um, I managed to get a grant from the Heritage Board in Singapore, and that paid for someone to translate it. And I was able to to kind of track our family from the 10th century onwards. And it's, it's, um, it's an incredible feeling. I'm sure. looking back yeah. to your ancestors that far back. Yeah. Now, is that like a privilege to have that genealogy? Do most families have this going back that far? Is that something really particular for your family? I think that it's quite, it's relatively common in China, mm-hmm. um, but it does uh, imply that you, your family has education and carries on having education because Whoever started, whoever was educated in the first place and started the genealogy, um, the, the generations that follow will also have to be educated to fill in. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you, if you, if your family then goes through very difficult times and, and their social standing falls 
and they can't afford schools, they can't afford they can't afford tutors and can't afford books, then no one can actually write and carry on filling in those um, mm -hmm. um, 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 particulars. So it is quite, it is not unusual, but it is not overly common, no. Mm -hmm. So I read that this journey started with a family photograph. Can you tell us a little bit about how that inspired you to learn more about your family? Yes, absolutely. My, my mother loved talking about her past, her childhood, and I loved listening. And one day when I was an adult, she got a, a wonderful photograph of about 14 people uh, taken in 1935 in Hong Kong, although these people were all my aunts and uncles from Singapore. They traveled to um, Hong Kong with their grandfather, my great-grandfather, and, and had this photograph taken. And um, I knew that my, my mother worshipped her grandfather because he was a, a, a very gentle man and he loved, he loved women. I mean, he loved his daughters, which was unusual for Chinese men of that generation. And, um, and he did a lot for them. And um, after my mother died, I wanted to, I was inspired by this photograph. I wanted to find out more about the great grand, the grandfather that she adored. And I started looking into it and um, trying to find out more about him. And of course, I had nothing to go on apart from the date and the location. Um, and, um, but just by using that date, 1935, and, and making an assumption that he looked about 70 years old in the photograph. I could then, I worked back to a date for his birth, which was 1865. And I could look at what was going on in China at that time and discovered that the, uh, South China was uh, suffering from terrible floods and North China was su suffering from terrible drought. And all of this was because of the little ice age that had lingered on in China much longer than it, even after it had ended in Europe, it carried on in China. And, um, and I was able to kind of stitch together a kind of background for why he left, he and his family left China for Singapore. But also in, in, in looking at the photograph, I was very drawn to the woman at the center of the photograph, very beautiful young woman. Um, and, um, I realized, I learned that this was my great aunt, my mother's aunt. <clears throat> and um, she had, she was, um, she was a rather unusual young woman. She was very stubborn, strong, strong-willed. And um, she decided when she was very young that because she didn't think her two older sisters had married very happily, that she didn't want to marry. And she wanted to um, not just not marry, but she wanted to have swear a public oath, an oath in front of the public not ever to marry. And it's a bit like swearing on the Bible not to, to, to do something. It means that if you then do something, you've got the wrath of God against you. And, and that was the same with this public oath. It was sworn in front of the gods of the household. And therefore, the understanding was if she ever broke the oath, and got married, she would be punished by the gods. So, um, so it was quite a serious thing to do. She mm. then went on to um, get herself an English education. She was 17 years old at the time, because she realized that 
if she didn't want to marry and she wanted to support herself, she had to have an education and become financially independent. So she um, went to primary school at the great old age of 17 and um, went on to university after that, which was very rare for a woman of her generation. Mm -hmm. And so was part of this kind of public, you know, uh, sworn spinster uh, ritual, um, is that related to the ghost marriages? Because I know I read something about that and that seemed very interesting. Yes, yes, no, it's, it's fascinating. Ghost marriages took place much earlier. So my great aunt was kind of descended from earlier feminists mm -hmm. in, 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 in China. And some of them, you know, if they were forced to, they, if they were forced to um, marry someone they didn't want to, um, actually, these were women who were um, already engaged to be married. And if their fiancés died, they were so faithful to, to the idea of these fiancés. And I think partly they didn't really want to marry. So they took the opportunity and, and said, we'd rather marry a ghost instead. Because, you know, if we marry, the, the thing about the Chinese of that time is that they regarded single women, unmarried women, as having no chance of an afterlife. Mm -hmm. And the only way you could have an afterlife was if your husband's family worshipped your uh, a plaque that represented you on their altar table. So you depended on being married to have an afterlife. And some of these women circumvented that and said, okay, we're not going to marry a man, but will marry a ghost, a dead man, a dead, dead single man, and then will adopt sons in his name. And these sons will grow up to worship both him and us. I mean, the single women, you know, mm -hmm. and that's how they got around that. That was, that was quite clever. Yeah. It's a good strategy. So it also seemed like for a lot of these women, food and cooking was really important. And some of the quotes in the book say things like all Chinese women, she they cooked for tech. And if she can do that, then the impossible might be possible. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of cooking for these women? Yes, I think I think cooking not just for these women, but for all Chinese women, even up to the present day. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mother used to, you know, when I, when I was um, sitting at examinations, she would, you know, like cook double boiled soups to improve my brain power <laughs> and that sort of thing. And, 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 you know, um, you know, if you're not well, things are cooked for you to help you get well more quickly. If you uh, have had a baby, you're given special soups cooked with vinegar and pig's trotters to kind of, help your womb contract properly. I mean, so, so yes. So I think the Chinese, Chinese women cook to protect their family and, and, and they, they cook to protect their family's health, but actually it's a bigger thing than that. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're willing them with the food that you cook. You're willing them to be physically robust, mentally strong, you know, and do well in life and never get you know, into trouble. And, you know, all those hopes are attached to the cooking, to the food that you cook and you, that you, you feed them with. Mm -hmm. 
And I have to ask you, you know, on that note, you start the book with a recipe for chili crab. And I just wanted to know why this particular recipe? Um, I, it's, a, it's like one of the best known recipes in Singapore. And it's so associated with Singapore. It's, you know, it's very spicy and it's absolutely delicious. And I thought that because the book starts by talking about Hong Kong, because the group, the family have got, have arrived in Hong Kong and then they get this photograph taken and they are actually going to be accompanying uh, my great grandfather to China. I thought there's nowhere there straight up that says this is written by a Singaporean. Mm -hmm. um, and actually this family is based in Singapore. And actually, ultimately, this story ends in Singapore. And I thought, if I start off with that recipe, it's, it's such an iconic recipe. And it sums up, yes, the love of food and cooking and eating that, you know, the Chinese and many other cultures, of course, but Chinese do share with many other cultures. And I thought that that recipe, because it's also called Singapore Chili Crab, the reader, when he, he or she opens the book, and reads that they know it's got something to do with Singapore. Mm -hmm. This book has got something to do with Singapore. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so as you were writing, how did your relationship with your family and specifically with your great aunt, how did that change over time while you were compiling this information and writing it down? Um, with my family, I guess with my mother, I became much more, um, methodical when she told me her stories i would start to make notes mm. you know i mean you, you know it's, it's very difficult when you're visiting your mother because by then i was living in london when i'm visiting her it's sometimes very difficult to 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 formalize an interview because it doesn't happen like that mm. if i sat her down and made her uh ask the questions she probably wouldn't answer them properly but it's so, so it's all very organic. It just grows out of a general conversation. But, and so sometimes, you know, I, I wouldn't have taken down notes, but I, I made it a point after that, after I started this book to make notes, mm -hmm. even if it was after the conversation. I also sought out uncles and aunts who, and, and, and whom I might have visited, but not visited with the view to interviewing them. Mm -hmm. And I did ask them questions. And I'm so glad I did because, um, uh, and uncle and aunt, Park Leong and Yin Yu in the book, um, they, the cousins who got married, um, they died about two years after I went to see them. And so that opportunity would have been completely lost if I hadn't uh, made it a point to see them. Mm -hmm. um, and as for my great aunt, of course, she, she had died by then. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't know her, but I got to know her better, I suppose, by, by researching. I mean, it was just incredible that my mother had said she went to the Methodist girls' school, which my mother went to and I went to. But it's just something my mother told me. And then my mother said, and after that, she went to university in Hong Kong because there was no university in Singapore or Malaya at the time. And again, that's just something she said. And after a while, when I did a bit of general research and I realized how difficult it was for a, a woman um, you know, young woman to go to Hong Kong to study uh, and go to university. I thought, well, maybe my mother got it mixed up with something else. Maybe she thought like 
a, a, a ladies finishing college, you know, uh, was a finishing school. Maybe she thought that was university. And so it was just incredible that I'm, I went to first the school that um, Fanny was supposed to have gone to, the Methodist girls' school. And just like that, we found her name, even after the archivist at the school said, there's no chance we'll find your aunt because the records don't go back to the 1930s or 20s. And yet we found it just like that. <laughs> and then for the university, when I wrote to the university, they said, we're very sorry, but Hong Kong was occupied by the Japanese around that time. After the During the occupation, lots and lots of records were destroyed. So we don't have anything. And, and I managed to get a hold of someone else who had written a book about the University of Hong Kong. And she put me on to someone else. And when I emailed him, he just emailed right back and said, I'm writing another book on the university and I've got all the details of your aunt. Just like that. It was just amazing. I, I kind of felt like, you know, maybe somebody was looking after me. Somebody up there was, you know, yeah. <laughs> thinking, we want this book written. <laughs> now, the, your aunt's story, unfortunately, ends with her taking her own life. And yes. I wonder, do you think that if she lived at a different time under different circumstances, if there's just if it wasn't so difficult, maybe things would have ended differently for her. I do think that. Um, I feel very sorry. And funnily enough, some of my, um, I feel very sorry. And some of my, my nieces who've read the book said, how could she do that? How could she leave her family? I think, I think what she was very weighted down by tradition. Yeah. Although she had, she was modern in many, many ways, you know, she, gone and got herself an edu a Western education and she'd gone and become a career woman. She was still completely weighted down by tradition and her tradition told her that for her brother to be arrested and executed was the worst thing to happen because her brother, I think, had taken the status of her father in the family. This is her eldest brother. And she and 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 tradition said that this is such a terrible thing to happen that the only correct response is to be utterly loyal and take your own life mm -hmm. to show that to show your regret to show your protest as a, a private protest that this should happen and 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 um and that's what you must do if. She, my mother said that she thought she saw, you know, regret in her aunt's eyes. Her aunt took a few days to die. Um, the poison worked very slowly. And my mother did go out to her. And, and she said to me later, I thought I saw regret. Mm. And, and yes, I think when she had a few days, Fanny had a, a few days to, to kind of think things over. I think she, she thought maybe she did the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as people read this book, whether they're in Singapore or London or all over the world, um, like where we are, <laughs> yeah. um, what do you think they're going to relate to when they sit down and crack it open? What about your family is just so universal to everybody? Um, I think... Um, friends who read it, they feel very moved by this young woman who 
decided to live life on her own terms and leave life on her own terms. You know, I mean, she, she, nobody, you know, she was completely her own woman. Um, I think, I think that, I think that that's sort of communicated itself to a lot of people. But I think also that uh, uh, certainly a lot of people in Britain um, and, and maybe also in the US, you know, I think in the US, a, a lot of people are very aware that um, the Japanese started, you know, really extended World War to the Pacific. Mm. And, um, but they don't realize, and they do realize that it was a series of errors that led to the British losing Singapore. But, and, and we know that all the British men who were left in Singapore, civilians and troops, were then sent to terrible places like Changi Prison. And from there, they were then moved to, to places like Burma. And we know that it was a terrible, terrible life for them as prisoners of war. But not many people know that the Chinese men left behind, the Chinese civilians in Singapore, the men in particular, were targeted by the Japanese and that a massacre took place uh, that basically took about 15 to 20 percent, killed 15 to 20 percent of the able-bodied um, adult male Chinese population in Singapore. And that's not something that's very widely known. And a lot of people here have said, oh, my God, I never knew that. You know, I mean, everyone was fixated on what happened to the British but my God, we didn't, we forgot about the local, the people who were local. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that's another thing that so many people can relate to as they read this book, because obviously war is not something specific to that region. Um, no. A lot of people have experienced this mm -hmm. and kind of how that trauma can work its way through generations, which is why it's so important that we have these records of your family, which is so special, you know, mm -hmm. And I also want to know, because there is so much world history going on while you're writing this book, was it hard to kind of weave that into this very personal story? I think with all the world history going on, I, as I was writing the book, I thought, oh, my God, everything here, which happened, you know, 50, 80, 80 years ago, or even a hundred and beyond that years ago, they're happening now. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the Japanese, uh, when Japan first in, sent troops into Shanghai, this is before, uh, this was in 1932, actually, when they first tried to kind of um, create a bit of trouble in Shanghai and sent troops in, they, they said it wasn't an invasion, it was an incident. They called it the Shanghai incident. And that's what happened sounds in familiar. Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Special operation is not war. It's not an invasion by Russia into Ukraine. It's a special operation. And I thought, wow, you know, politicians, they still use the same words and still try to throw sand into people's eyes in, in the same way. Mm. So it, it was all too kind of, as I wrote it, I thought, my family and all those people then who were living, they had no idea that their lives were going to be suddenly changed. 
suddenly change. You know, whatever plans they had to educate themselves and, you know, at, like people now, I'm going to save up money and send my children to good schools and, and they'll do well. You know, we're really fixated on how well um, our children do at, 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 at the exams and everything. And yet something can happen suddenly, you know, like war that you don't expect or indeed the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's lives put on hold for a couple of years. You know, who saw that coming? Nobody did. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this just sounds amazing. And I can't wait for our readers, our listeners mm-hmm. to become your readers and get their hands <laughs> on your book. Can you um, tell everybody where they can find you online, on social media, and then where they can find this book? Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I'm kind of... um. Um, from the generation that social media forgot. And <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not on social media. But if you Googled Teresa Lim or you Googled the interpreter's daughter, um, you will find, you should find reviews, podcasts, interviews. Um, just bear in mind there are other Teresa Lims uh, who come up, uh, some of them very gorgeous girls. And um, <laughs> I'm in my 60s, so sadly they're not me. <laughs> Um, and readers can, I think, um, uh, you can certainly buy the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, indie bookshops. Just go into your local bookshop, and if they haven't got the book, ask them to bring it in. Yeah. There's also the audiobook of the interpreter's daughter, which I narrated, and which you can get through Audible, Kindle Books, Google Play, Kobo, that sort of thing. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about. You're very interesting family. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, do we have anything else? No, I, I'm so, we were so, we're so lucky to, to have you here. I think mm-hmm. one thing that really does get glossed over in a lot of our American history courses is that Eastern and Southern Asian history. Um, I mean, we even, you know, study World War II from the Western Front. Mostly. Of course, so of course, it's, yeah. It's such an important, like, thing to add into the literature. I'm glad you think so. I'm yeah. glad you think so. And, and, and ladies, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, and seeing that those lovely cocktails you mixed up. <laughs> you put me in the, the mood for one. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>